Fi Ran the Bank is a podcast hosted by Clayton Weir, co-founder and head of product and strategy at FiSpan, a fintech that is enabling banks to provide contextualized, consumer-like experiences to their business clients. Clayton is a leading thought leader in financial innovation and hits on the hottest topics in banking, finance, and the future of payments. And he wants to know, if you ran the bank, what's the one thing you'd go all in on? Please tune into Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, here's your host, Clayton Weir. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of If I Ran the Bank. I am your host, Clayton Weir, and I'm very excited about today's guest, Justin Farabee. I came to, just kind of came on my radar uh, back a couple years ago when he was still in his post as a chief operating officer of Payments Canada, which is kind of, I guess, unique to Canada, but sort of like the notch of organization would be in some ways like a combination of the notch and the Fed really would, and the clearinghouse would kind of maybe be the way to put it together in context for the Americans. And that was during a very interesting time, right? So where uh, Canada was in, has been embarking on this journey to kind of modernize entirely our, our payments infrastructure. And Really excited about Justin, not just kind of because of the depth of his experience, kind of both in the belly of the beast with Payments Canada, but also as a kind of operator and investor in the fintech space and and more broadly. Um, also, just very excited to have him as I as I told him offline due to uh, kind of the real realness and the uh, uh, maybe maybe bordering on snark occasionally on the, of his LinkedIn posts. But I'm really excited for what I think is going to be an energetic uh, conversation. Do you want to fill in the blanks on 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 kind of who you are and, and what you're doing now, Justin? Oh, that's a that's a great summary. Thanks very much. I I think that pretty much captures it. I uh, yeah. Okay. Well done. <laughs> got got it nailed. Um, so on that note, and I mean, I'm, I'm going to maybe ask you to kind of dive in here on on kind of your big ideas and and what you would would lean into if you you ran the bank. But do you want to maybe talk a little bit about how your background, both as an operator and um, on the infrastructure side, is kind of you know forms the context for for what you're going to tell us and, and what you're going to pitch. Yeah. So my background before joining Payments Canada, which was uh, about five or six years ago, uh, was in uh, large strategy and transformational programs for private sector as well as some government. So I have a, an interest in ecosystem level change, whether that be a large enterprise or an enterprise in its whole ecosystem. And uh, after joining Payments Canada, that was a large scale transformation and probably one of the most linear in terms of we needed to change the legislation, then we changed the board of directors, then we changed the executive, we tripled the size of the organization, we changed a lot of the activities or the way we were operating things. We eventually changed the name and got very active in, in modernizing uh, in the ecosystem and the infrastructure. And I would say that it has got been uh, consistent from a timeline and investment perspective to other places in the world. Uh, I was probably in the category of reformer in that, in that grouping, and I was a minority, but uh, Hopefully, we all had ideas of a big change, and I'd say that we partially succeeded. There's still a lot that has been undone, but the level and scope of the change is significant and challenging, and we're still hopeful and optimistic for what's to come. On that note, I don't want to take us too far off track, but it just just occurred to me if you're you know if you are a reformer, I guess there there it's a vision you have in mind of where you're aiming for. Is there 
is there a, a sort of country or, or a region whose kind of market payments, you know, infrastructure and, and program that you really look to as, as kind of a beacon of something to strive towards? Or uh, I wouldn't say there's any one country that gets there. I think there's lots of con- countries that have done bits and pieces and it comes together. Every country lives with its own regulatory environment and legacy and bank uh, structure and concentration and that kind of thing. I think the opportunity is to uh, use payment infrastructure to do two things. One is to drive friction out of the system so that the cost, time, and uh, frictional items in, in processing of payments goes trends towards zero. The second is to enable a payment system to uh, control contain the payment information Payments and their information are separated at at origin when they when they're at birth and then they travel different tracks and then we reconcile them at the end and it's an expensive process for large companies, and that infrastructure doesn't allow the information to travel. So imagine, if you will, a a, a payments and an information rail that was close to frictionless and allowed you to run your business through uh, right through to reconciliation at the other end. And that was really more the vision is the outcome rather than the infrastructure itself. And I'm not sure anybody's really nailed it. I think Canada had an opportunity to be more aggressive and potentially still does, but the window is closing. No, I think that's a really good point. And it's, it's really interesting. I was going to, my follow-up question was going to be when you take that abstract idea of being payment modernization and kind of having a, these new tools, it's, you know, what's, what's the outcome? I think you, you hinted on that as it's really, it, it feels kind of abstract. I think in, in some sense, no different than, you know, physical infrastructure like bridges, which are, don't have an outcome of their own. But in this case, the modern payment infrastructure is really this platform for evolution of all these real world customer experiences and business processes. I think end to end, you know, just paying your invoices um, to your vendors with this end to end context and this automation of reconciliation is this second order outcome of doing this hard work and doing it in the right way. And Clayton, that's a, that's a great point. And we, we, we have always struggled with infrastructure and being able to articulate and quantify and capture the benefit that it does. I mean, what is the benefit of the 401 highway that has a corridor between Windsor and Quebec City? It's uh, goods move faster, things can happen. When you get into the digital world, people have a hard time. Well, what's the prize? What, why are we making this investment? Why should we make the change? Why should regulation catch up or make the change? And I think the the, the analog for me is uh, when Google did Google Maps, they didn't envisage Uber. But Uber is an innovation that sits on top of the maps. Without maps, you wouldn't have been able to do it. But we can't see what's out there. Now, we can count the cost of payments now, and we know it's close to, it's a friction of about $30 billion a year annually in Canada, which is more than the transport sector, is more than the crop industry. So it's real money that is being spent on payments. Then there's a second order of cost, which is to say when I make a deposit into my bank account, which is a check and the funds are held and I can't use those funds for five days, what's the cost to my business to work around that? What's the cost of my time to go down to the bank once, twice, three times a week to do all this kind of stuff? And those aren't captured in any way. And then you get into the opportunities that are lost where new innovation is happening in other countries. They'll bring it here if we don't do it. And then the wealth will be generated and created in other countries. And we won't, we won't realize it. So we can't even quantify it. There's very strong data that says the friction or the cost of payments in a country is about 1%, between 1% and 2% of GDP. That's spectacularly high, given the, the value that's being added for that, uh, for that function. And in a time of, of recovery from COVID, uh, the friction at $30 billion a year, if we put that on five years, you're talking about real money. 
And there's opportunity to create innovation, to create wealth. And we're, we're kind of missing that. And I think because it's infrastructure, because it's complex and because it's not visible, we don't, uh, we don't pursue it. Totally agree. And I think that's a great kind of narrative over, over top of this. And I mean, that's what, where we struggle. I think it's in some ways un-Canadian is what, what Silicon Valley, um, you know, is always good at is if you hear the guys from Stripe talk and it actually kind of maybe almost sounds obnoxious, right? But their mission is to grow the GDP of the internet. And you're like, well, what does that mean? How does, how does this merchant processing developer tools grow the GDP of the internet? It, literally every marginal use case and developer they onboard is creating probably net new transaction volume. They're creating patterns of commerce that just literally didn't exist because the tool set and the infrastructure doesn't exist. So it's it's entirely this world that's accretive and has all these spin-on effects for everybody, right? It just entirely by doing a, a really boring kind of thing under the waterline. Yeah, it's, it's, it, it is quite spectacular, actually. And if you can't see it, then it's hard to believe it. But when you see the connection, and like you say, the, the speed of the economy is the speed of the flow of money, right? If my money sits for five days, I haven't deployed it. It's not being used on stuff. When you multiply that by everybody doing things, it goes faster and that's better. And it is the, the access that Shopify and others are doing for small business is building resiliency in our economy. I mean, there are people who through COVID have been able to uh, survive and in some cases thrive because they were given the opportunity to build a small commerce uh, enterprise. There's a, a fabric store in uh, East Vancouver. Um, I, I can't fathom like the lowest tech business you could ever imagine, like these these bolts of fabric for grandma's <laughs> knitting dresses for their uh, for their granddaughters or whomever. <laughs> they allegedly set up a, a Shopify store instantly at the start of COVID and became like the most bizarre, you know, digital e-commerce that you could imagine. Right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. I um, love it. And again, it's you know, Shopify as a, you know, an infrastructure that in that case creates marginal economic opportunity that, that wouldn't have been possible. And I, I mean, I, I, and I, I hate to harp on this too far, but it's uh, and, and I'm optimistic about where the world goes when we do these kinds of things. But it also builds individual confidence and resilience and it changes the culture of a nation or or, or more broadly. And, and it, it is not uh, I don't think it's understated if we get it right, what it can do. Totally agree. So um, let's maybe use this as turning point to kind of your, your big idea. And so obviously you kind of ha had some privileged access to be at, at the center of the ecosystem in a very interesting time and kind of all your perspective. So uh, with that being said, what, you know, kind of get up on your, on your soapbox. What, what is, what is your, uh, what, what are these critical few items that you would lean into if you were uh, running the bank, so to speak? Uh, it's a good question. And when you first uh, reached out, I had some time to think about it. And I think before I, I say too much, I want to start by saying that Canada has a very strong banking sector. Our banks are big and they're strong. They're well capitalized. They're well managed. They've got smart, capable people in them. And they are trying to grow and trying to do the right thing for their customers and for our country as well. They live in a context of regulation, of legacy systems, of uh, competition and global trends. And it's not an easy thing to square. I think it's favorable. A lot of the regulations and some of the protections are favorable, but it's not an easy thing to do. And it's uh, more complex than I know or completely understand, but that won't stop me from having an opinion. So I wanna say that up front that these things uh, and, and my comments can seem like bank bashing, that's not my intent. I think that change comes from challenging and from pushing and from articulating things that are, are uh, 
can be done better. And it's not an intent to criticize those that are trying to do their best, but we collectively can do better. And I think my big idea starts with the fact that we are at a moment in time which is going to have a profound impact on financial services, more so than we've had in many generations. And that opportunity is going to benefit uh, Canadians and uh, Canada, as we've talked about already. And it will, the, the degree to which we embrace it and engage in it will drive the extent to which we benefit from it. If we don't capitalize on this opportunity, then we will be watching others do so, and we will watch others serve us, and they will reap the rewards, and the wealth will be created outside of our borders. We have an opportunity to lead because of the strength of our, of our sector, and we have an opportunity to then take that to the world. And I'd say right now we're behind. It's a very optimistic world out there for financial services, and the, the, the famous expression and probably uh, overplayed is that the world needs banking, not banks. And that isn't to say that banks aren't going to bring banking. It's just to say that we don't need it the way it is right now. And Canadians are not vocal about all that we've done. We are not braggadocious, but we are capable and we are coming from a solid base. And I think the big idea is that we can step forward and uh, and we can we can lead here and we need to bring a number of things together for that to happen. Now I'm probably running over my three minutes and maybe I'm giving you a, a narrative that will lead to my big idea. But the uh, there are there are things in the market that you can see in FinTech, Paytex yourself and the, the enterprises that you've undertaken and had success with are all trying to make things better. So those things are out there. We know it can be done. We've seen the benefits that, that come from it. If I were running the bank, I would look to that change and work less to defend myself from its impact and more to embrace it and the opportunity it creates. It's not easy. It requires me to uh, challenge or to cannibalize my existing business and margin. It requires me to take risk when I am successful and profitable and a lot of people depend on my consistent performance in the markets. It's not easy with a regulatory environment where a regulator is emboldened by the performance in 2008 and likely concerned, possibly afraid of change because it might risk that success track record. So it gets hard if you're a bank to navigate into the new world when you are sitting in that context. That said, it's not impossible. And just because it's hard, it doesn't mean it shouldn't be done. And the opportunity is around concepts like open banking and payment modernization and others. But really what they are talking about is taking the concept of the bank as an arbitrage between uh, an arbitrage play between depositors and borrowers, where you keep a captive customer and you keep the two apart so that you can make something in the middle and move towards a more customer, a more focused, a more customer obsessed, a more expert and a more risk managed model than a risk avoidance model. And what we see in that is the idea that our banks now are the department stores of, 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 of history where they do everything for everybody. And the future sees financial services fragmenting and having retailers of financial service and products and having wholesalers of financial services and products and having originators. Now, it isn't to say that our banks aren't big enough that they can be many banks in one uh, conceptually, but the idea is we need to do a better service by, by niche. And I'll take an example is small business. Small business is an un underserved market. Although everyone attempts to, they're tricky because they're risky. And 
our banks have risk management or risk avoidance. And so they get very strict on the rules and credit rules that they have for small business. And so they provide less. And so small businesses get less capital. They pay more for it. And it's not really fair or competitive to other countries. If we, if you, there were new bank, if a, a bank were to become more focused, they would be much better at managing the risk of small businesses. They'd be able to weed them out from more than the blunt instruments of a credit bureau and equity in the house. They'd be able to say, you know, who are the high risk and low risk, and be able to extend capital at a, a more favorable rate. So I guess the idea is embrace the transformation of financial services globally, get out in front and lead, and don't protect and hide uh, your customers from their borrowers, but get out and help to facilitate, to connect, to serve, and to advance with innovation, the new ideas that can be built in an economy in financial services. No, that's, that's very interesting. And, and um, to maybe just take a minute, I actually think there's maybe four or five ideas in there, maybe more that are that are worth kind of unpacking a little bit. So one of these, obviously at the core of it, is, is at, at Justin's Bank, you're kind of, kind of lean into the winds of change on, on, on the kind of infrastructure side, right? So you're going to embrace kind of the, you know, the payments modernization and the investment that's going to take, you're going to write off the compliance, you're going to do the same on open banking and, 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 and kind of flip the page. It sounds to what the, what that's going to enable in your business in terms of customer experiences. I think that the next kind of interesting thing in here is, um, even talking about the idea of balance sheet, it, you know, it occurs to me as some of the non-balance sheet FIs have kind of surpassed the biggest banks in terms of market cap, right? It starts to create an interesting question. Yes, yes. Historically, we've always thought that, you know, lending and, and deposits need to be matched and, and those kinds of things. And the, the 2008 scenario reference really was about balance sheet strength and not about this other stuff. But if we go down the stack, I think the other idea here that always blows my mind as an outsider is the lack of kind of leaning in, you know, carving up some of these niches and, and, and leaning in. So small business is one that um, is near to my heart as well that you mentioned. So let's, let's maybe talk about that and, and, and maybe let me ask, why do you think that that doesn't happen today? Why do you think that there's not a bank just, Hey, we're absolutely like, what, what would have to be true for us to be the absolute best bank for small businesses in, in this country or in, in another market or whatever. And, 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 try and reorient their offering around something like that? It's, it's a great question. And I have uh, started and run a lot of small businesses. And so it's a, an experience that is very close to me, but also my frustration is, is very close to the surface as well. And, and you know, when me and my other small business friends get around together, if anybody raises the, the prospect of the, the frustration with banking, it's, you know, quick to everybody have a story. Uh, in some cases, it's unfair, but in, in many cases, it the what we see as a small business customer are policies that are not logical. So it becomes really, really challenging. There's a there's a you know, the idea that entrepreneurs take risks, huge risks, and uh, that there's a little bit of caution to the wind and they do crazy stuff. And maybe that's true for some on the margins. But I think the irony is that entrepreneurs are just very confident risk managers. They're able and confident in their ability to manage the many risks. I think that uh, entrepreneurs are able to see the risks. They're able to identify how they, what their impact could be, how to mitigate them. And then they're able and confident in their assessment to take a chance based on that. 
So when they go into a, a branch and they're trying to execute a financial transaction and the policy or the decision is not favorable and the logic doesn't hold, it's really frustrating. So what you end up feeling is you don't have a bank that's thinking or a bank that doesn't know you or a bank that doesn't understand you and is not supportive of you. And you're largely captive because there is some homogeneity across the, the large banks. So it comes very frustrating to say, well, I will go somewhere else and your experience somewhere else can be very uh, consistent with your experience at your, your first bank. So we see things like uh, the frustrate you end up as a small business, you end up spending 20, 20% of your time just banking, you know, just doing simple things and you know what they are, but to do a, 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 a payment from you know, a $10,000 payment from a domestic bank to a domestic bank in Canada is very challenging and expensive. And that's just a really simple thing that, that why is it that a small business in South Africa has a better service than I do? I actually just want the same level of service as others have. Totally makes sense. It occurs to me that on this small business front, there's at least a couple different issues. And so you've been talking about the lending side, but you just leaned in on kind of this operational burden thing. And so let's maybe unpack that first. And then I want to kind of go back to lending. So I think those are at least, let me, let me share my hypothesis. And let's go back down to those two things. I think part of the issue around small business when I kind of sit with, with bankers is, um, and I know it's sort of true of even the way that our company kind of works with our banks and, and we tend to have, sub-segment higher in the stack, like kind of middle market and, and up in corporates. With, with small business is very interesting, right? Because historically, I think much more so than, than with corporates, the lending side of the house is the economic engine for the bank, right? right? The kind of operational services around treasury payments just don't add up, right? Even if you feel it's exorbitant, you're hundred bucks a month. And, and, and so it's very lending focused as business change, the, the patterns of businesses change and you don't, own a factory or something you put a mortgage on it, you become really hard to lend to. So your economics get worse for the bank. You feel like you're getting less access to capital and all this stuff. But the reality is, as you said, it's really hard to run your business. It takes a little time to like, you know, pay your bills and do all this reconciliation. It, it strikes me as like the thinking's not right there that if you could actually lean in and, and surface and solve those operational finance problems for your small businesses, there's probably an uncommensurate amount of fee value that you could. Yes. Attract. Yes. Yes, I, I, I think that is a great summary. And I, I don't think that small businesses mind paying for, for value added. I think the frustration is paying for things that don't seem to be naturally, logically value adding yeah. and not getting access to things which you don't mind paying for. Yeah. So it's, it's really, I don't, I don't think, I mean, there are, there are small businesses that like every consumer and, and any group, there are some that are risky and shady and all that kind of stuff. But the, the problem is that the policies reflect the avoidance of those rather the embracing of the ones that are strong and capable and willing and and responsible. And, and there are very few that wouldn't uh, be responsible in, in the execution of, of any 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 uh, duties, responsibilities that they have. You know, they're, they're trying to do the right thing. They're trying to succeed. And they're not they're not trying to pull the wool over anybody's eyes. And uh, and so there's just not a match there. And I think it's the dexterity or the responsiveness or the ability of a, a large institution to respond to uh, fast moving, smaller category needs. It, it strikes me, I know a lot of investors use the term, uh, like venture investors, consumer signal, right? There's this idea that a type of behavior is emergent. And if you ever, you know, become sufficiently solved, it'll, it'll, it'll skyrocket, right? There's enough evidence in advance that people want it. And I think for this, some of this stuff on small business banking, it, you just have to look at the, 
non-bank places people will go and what they're willing to pay per item to bill.com or whomever to create a nicer experience around something like the consumer signal strikes me as validated charging per item fees that would be insane in a bank context, right? You know, in multiple X of, of what you would charge as a bank for the, the non-value added version of it, it the signal's there for, for very high margin business, you would think. Yeah, and I, th I think what's happened is the signal is growing and it's not a, it's not a uh, free market. So the signals are there, but it can't, they can't be received. They can't be met because of the regulatory environment and the access to the payment system. So, and payments, I think I probably overplay payments a little bit, but to our conversation earlier, it's foundational. And if you get it right, it changes things. So if you have payments that are accessible to new technologies and new companies who can help people to use uh, and to make their payments and to use the information that goes with that payment, it's profound, but the payment system is an exclusive club as it is right now. And the payment system is, uh, is not one thing. And if you look at the center, there's multiple payment systems. There's the high value system that processes $50 billion a day or $200 trillion or $50 trillion a year and $200 billion a day. And that is a risk-based system. And I think that everybody who comes close to touches or understands what that system is, you say, no, you can't just have access to it. That is a very, very controlled, overseen infrastructure because it's systemically important to, to, to Canada. Got it. The batch system is... You know, it's got much higher volume, but much lower value, much lower risk. Why do we manage it with the same exclusivity as the high value system? The real-time rail is proposing to have a pre-funded uh, risk model, which means there's almost no risk in the system. There's operational risk and there's cyber risk and other things like that. There's no huge financial risk. And yet we use the same exclusivity in the management of that. So we take the highest risk component. We take the aspects and the attributes of that risk management, and then we apply it to everything. And it shuts everything out. And so every time a fintech or yourselves, you've done some brilliant things to help people work around it or to, to get some value out of what is there. But when people try and come into it and we say, well, let us in, they say, well, it's very risky. And so everyone gets afraid and so we don't do it. And it's that is kind of at the center of all of this is this whole risk management thing, which is a bit of a misnomer in that it's risk aversion or risk uh, reduction. So we do less things and the ultimate outcome of a risk management led approach is to do nothing. So you have to learn to manage and apply on a risk basis. So we're not doing that right now. We're trying to, but uh, if you don't want to open up the payment system, your first defense is it's risky, whether you believe it or not, it's a very effective defense. And so we just don't have access. And so until we get access to the payment system for pay tech companies uh, or secondary banks or challenger banks or innovative banks to open the system and be able to sponsor or otherwise act for these these institutions, these, uh, these companies, we're, we're not going to see the change. Open banking work on if you can't do payment execution. And I know we talk about it and it sounds like it's the big thing and we're going to be slow on open banking, but if you can't move payments, if I can't get a dashboard and I can't see my money and you know small business, my personal wealth, my personal accounts, my personal credit cards, my business accounts, my business credit cards are all, I got to move things between all those things all the time. It's very difficult and time consuming. Imagine a dashboard where I could see it all and I could move it all and I could account for it all in my home. Oh, what I would give for that. That 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 is the the holy grail, the the single piece of glass. Let's maybe park that for a second. So that's kind of I guess we kind of deep dived on the kind of operational and the payment side. Really, I mean, really this is the deposit taking side of small business, right? But the other part of this is the lending that you talked about before. What strikes me as interesting there is in the non bank world. 
what has happened, I think the response to the difficulty of lending to small businesses that aren't, you know, in like don't have assets and it's not more, you know, it's kind of cash flow type lending is it's become more challenging, more expensive at times. The nature of those businesses is so different than it probably once was. I feel like in Canada, ClearBank, but in, in the US, probably more materially like this Stripe and, and Square kind of merchant capital stuff. The whole nature of our understanding of how to lend to businesses and what data we would want as the lender to do that is fundamentally changing as well, right? The whole nature in, in a sense of, of how we lend to small businesses is different than it just materially different and really overnight. And I think that uh, it's, a, it's a great point. And it's actually at the crux of it. And it's, I'm not even sure what to call it. It's almost the, the, the markers of risk and the risk management. And, you know, rather than two markers or five markers, having 20 or 25 or 75 or 100 markers and being able to quite granularly be able to determine the risk of a, of a single business. And I think uh, we are able to do that in many circumstances. And it is not uh, unforeseen or it's not impossible for us to be able to get there in small business. There's enough patterns, there's enough consistency, there's enough predictability in that, that we can be much more granular. So we can A, determine the the risk and then price it. And right now they're just not matched. Fortunately, there are companies who are providing that access. It's expensive, but at least they're providing the access. And in time, we'll worry about whether it's affordable or not or the right price or whatever. But you know, how many small businesses fund on their credit card, which is just only because it's accessible, because the other things aren't. It's just a mismatch in price and risk for the small business. And that, that that's burdened by the small business. Yeah, no, t- totally agree. And it's- there was, uh, there was, it was an interesting thing. Payments is one of those, I suspect, has a lot of markers in it. And you know, how you spend your money, as when we were looking at all the kind of innovative things you can do, because we were trying to, to our earlier conversation, trying to identify opportunities that the payment system releases or, or unlocks. And the idea that came up was that your payments data tells you more about yourself than anything else. And it's more accurately defines who you are and what you do, because it's actually where you spend your money. And so there was this big you know, hackathon and there were all these ideas that came up and there were some really smart things that came up. So I have, my father passed away from Alzheimer's. And what they were proposing is uh, if, you, if you were able to track payments information, you could watch behaviors. And when his behavior starts to deviate from something normal or sanctioned, then I could get notified and we could take action to try and uh, ensure that, that bad things don't happen. And that, that's a, a mental health or a health component to payments. And that's quite serious. And there were other examples of, of very serious uses for payments data. And some of the more tongue in cheek one was a, a, a dating app that helped match you uh, based on your payments data rather than on what you say, because what you say you are and what your payments data says you are may or may not be closely matched. And I, I don't know if that means if you like to spend your money, you're well matched with somebody who doesn't, or if you want to be with somebody who does, I don't know. But it was quite interesting that the, it was uh, revealing because there's the information is there. That's actually literally the driver of divorce, to my understanding. I think 50% of divorce explained by a mismatch in money management preferences between the two parties. Wow. So, so you wow. could, I heard that. you could revolutionize happiness. Um, with your idea. <laughs> wow. I thought we were just doing financial services. I had no idea. I love it. I love it. We, we just made the world a better place. I, I don't quote me on that number, but it's, <laughs> it's, 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 something, it's something quite material. Um, I had a question I wanted to ask about this and it had one more thing. Oh, I just, sorry, I hadn't actually had an example. So, I mean, it was just one of the better little fintech ideas I'd seen recently was it was a small business credit card in the U.S. because obviously like subscription fatigue is one of these big things, both personally and a small business. Like, I don't know if I spend as a company probably has 
100 SaaS applications that we use to run our business. Um, it just goes in like it's militantly reading your credit card billing data every month. It's like, oh, did you remember this like subscription for this or that? Or do you use this still? And it it's trying to like just passively yeah, yeah find all this like dead spent and and look at that data i think it's just a, a, a sort of that's a legitimate value add um yeah. reason, reason to bank with that that card issue a great idea and the the so there the payments data and i again payment sounds not that interesting not that revolutionary but you're giving examples of how it, it actually is and it's the first step like it doesn't do all the innovation but it's the first step and so there's a there's a big debate uh, as to who owns that information, and uh, there are financial institutions who say they do, and of course there are consumers who say well, it's my information. Who owns it? I own it? And there is arguments to both sides. And uh, frankly, I don't really care who owns it as long as I can have a copy of it and I can see it and I can share it with people, which I ought to be able to do if I own it. And that's kind of why open banking is being investigated and and advanced as consumer led finance because it's about the consumer's right, but it's really that information, especially if it had more than five characters associated to it and it could tell you all kinds of things, is incredibly powerful. It's You can see the truth and now we can do something with it. And it becomes a platform for innovation. Yeah. And I, I, think, I don't think you can underestimate the impact that that has if you can, if you can crack through that. T totally agree. So on that note, let's just maybe kind of transition a little bit here and, and just kind of the final little open next question I wanted to get your thoughts on was you just mentioned the sort of consumer directed finance uh, program in Canada, which seems to have picked up a little bit of steam. There's some announcements on, on payment modernization um, and obviously probably on the most concrete front around some of the data privacy updates that, that has come out of government. So do you want to just maybe trying to, I'd love to, for you to encapsulate kind of your world view on the state of play, because I, I think those things are all super intertwined to this future we're, yeah, um, we're creating in this nation, but do you want to? I like that there's activity. I'm suspect as to its speed. There's a lot of uh, consultations and a lot of reflections and a lot of, I mean, the real-time rail. And, and I, uh, I, am, I was part of the infrastructure and apparatus at Payments Canada. The real-time rail was intended to be live five years ago. And so we've now chosen a vendor in that five-year period, which uh, is not one of my proudest achievements. Uh, so progress, but it takes a long time. And if there is reluctance to change, which there is, uh, progress can be, things can look like progress for a very long time without anything really happening. And I'm optimistic because I think the potential is profound. I'm pessimistic in terms of the speed with which we'll get there. And the real question that is undetermined yet is, will we get there in time to materially benefit from it or not? And right now, I would say we're not on track to do that. Uh, I, I, it's very easy to be critical and cynical and dark. Uh, I'm not. I believe the potential is profound. I'm frustrated with the speed with which things change and with the, um, I wouldn't say absence, but with the softness of the leadership of our regulator. It's unfair to ask financial institutions to disrupt themselves. So they will move with the pace. They're, they're acting exactly as they should to their shareholders. And in this environment, we need leadership in the regulatory environment to drive this. And that leadership is not exhibiting itself at this time or exerting itself on these issues. No, I think that that's a, a great way to sum that up. I, I appreciate that. I appreciate the, the candor. So we just to kind of transition to 
our little closing sequence here on a little bit of a lighter note. Can you uh, can you tell the listeners what your very first ever job was? I can. I don't know if you uh, have ever eaten in a university cafeteria, but uh, when I was at university, you would get a tray and collect all your stuff because you were on the you know all you can eat plan. And you go down, you get it. When you're finished eating, you go up that little square window in the wall and you throw your tray in there. I sat on the other side of that to pick the garbage off the tray. My goodness. Um, and what, 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 if any, lessons do you carry from that experience into your, your work? You've got to stay focused or the backup or, the, or it gets backed up pretty bad and gets very messy. So uh, it, was, it was a very uh, good lesson on the, on the manufacturing process of, you know, the things coming in and triaging and moving things quickly because it, it would always spike. And I have to say university students are not particularly sensitive to who's on the other side of that wall. And they never follow the rules either, you know, about sorting and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> University students t- tend to not always follow the rules. So it totally, <laughs> totally makes sense. Um, and and I guess from there to what you do today, and I, I mean, I was going to characterize it. I, I think it's maybe unfair to, to pigeonhole you as kind of a, a, you know, payments industry guy. I think to some extent your career is it's much broader than that. But how to, you know, can you maybe your current kind of passion for, you know, investing in and, and and founding companies and especially to some extent in this space, where was the moment that that you realized that that was what you wanted to, that was your life's work? I I don't think I ever did. I think I've largely followed uh, my curiosities, my interests, and that isn't, uh, I like to see big things change. It's just so satisfying when something that is wrong is righted, when something is, you know, poor and is improved. There's just this it's like, you know, the before and after of the world. I just, I just love that feeling. And so the idea of transforming and doing bigger things has always been interesting to me. It's not primarily, uh, what is it? You're either, uh, I can't remember what the motivators are, but it's fear or, or it's uh, fame or money or whatever it is. And it's largely just been around the scope of impact. I would just rather have a bigger impact on things getting better because I get so frustrated when things aren't. And I, I don't even know why that is or how to characterize that as a, a uh, skill. <laughs> it's not a skill, maybe a curse, but it's just very, very satisfying. Uh, it's frustrating to see it and satisfying to see it corrected. And so it just, I just land in places where there are problems that want to be fixed. That's a really good point. And it's actually funny because I know a lot of investors kind of characterize different founders that way that they're, you know, fame or fame or money or power motivated, right? And there's different aspects. But in my experience, the very best founders, the, everybody has a secondary like bias to one of those, but it's really just this becomes a sense of OCD that the thing is out of place. And <laughs> like really motivated to get it back in place. Yeah, it's like rainbow their bookshelf or something like that. <laughs> That's good and, and, and true. And true. And, and just uh, finally, what's the uh, what's the dumbest thing you've ever done that that maybe later turned out to be a good idea? Uh, I don't know if it was it, I, the dumbest thing I've, I've ever done. Well, not ever done. I've done a lot of dumb things. One of the things was to I did it more out of frustration than out of stupidity. Was just to give up on trying to manage all of as a, as a manager or leader in a high tech business in the nineties just giving up trying to keep control of it all because it was too much for me and feeling negligent and irresponsible. And then finding out that the people with whom I worked uh, were strong, capable, disciplined, and effective at taking that on and solving and fixing things themselves and that I was largely the problem. And so that was a very fortuitous learning because uh, it, it was better for me. It was better for everyone involved. And 
Uh, I think it, it declined my intellectual capabilities very quickly, but it was hugely beneficial to, to my work uh, and my impact. No, I think that's a, a good lesson, a good reminder for, for all of us. Um, well, that, that sort of concludes our time. I mean, just for the sake of kind of summarizing, I think our conversation, trying to come back and paraphrase it quick, I, I thought what was super interesting, right, is, is obviously at, at Justin's Bank, you're going to lean into the kind of systemic um, uh, changes at the infrastructure level and, and try and use those to your advantage um, and, and just assume that they're going to happen and, and start building on it. I think I also heard that it's super important, I think it's important for all of us, that it's really important to take those infrastructure changes and enhance and build the narrative as to why, right? Start with why on what does this do? How does this filter down, whether it's a consumer or whether it's you know an underserved uh, market of consumers? I, I think that transitions to the kind of nail your niche thinking, right? Small business, there's all these things where if we redid the recipe, there's this massive consumer utility for the small business, but economic utility for the, the service provider um, that, that does that. And I, I, I think those are the, the big lessons I, I heard a takeaway. Is that, did I, did I sell you short on any of that? No, I, you make me sound much smarter than I am. I appreciate that. Thanks. <laughs> um, well, there you go. That's the we hope, hopefully provide some service here. At uh, if I remember. <laughs> um, awesome. Well, thanks for the time. I really enjoyed the conversation. I appreciate it. I appreciate the kind of frankness and the the regular thinking. And uh, um, yeah, hopefully we can do it again sometime. Likewise, I like that. I appreciate Clayton. It's been a real pleasure spending the time with you. Awesome. And thanks everybody for listening. And as always, um, you can. Uh, we appreciate it if you subscribe at uh, Spotify or Apple or I, I think I was going to say wherever you get your podcast, but I'm pretty sure those are the only two places that you can get this one. So that <laughs> should be where you get your podcast going forward. And uh, any feedback or uh, complaints or ideas for improvement, you can email maybe HR at fivespan.com. I don't know. Um, but awesome. Thanks for listening. Thanks again, Justin. Cheers.